You're dressing up like you're the Grim Reaper or something. Allow me to tell you, my friend. My name is Will Osprey. Many of my family call me Billy. I like to refer myself as Billy and Mandy because they like to play with death. And that's what you think you are. You think you're death, don't you? I welcome death. But right now, I can't die because I feel so alive. But right now, I might be hurting. But evil, I don't want to finish on four points. I am the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion. I'm not fighting in darkness world, I'm fighting in Osprey's world, where physics are a myth, and you're about to enter my world, where rules, physics, gravity do not apply. The only thing that does apply is that evil goes down to the junior heavyweight champion. Welcome to another mini-sode of the Wrestling House Show, covering every single tournament match in New Japan Pro Wrestling's G1 Climax 29. My name is Chris, and if you've been following along on cnjradio.com, you'll have heard me recap, review, and basically gush about how much I've been enjoying each and every match in the G1 Climax this year. Most of the tournament matches have ranged from good to fantastic, so listen up as I dive right into round 7 of round robin block action and talk about nights 13 and 14 of the G1 Climax Tour. Night 13 of the G1 Climax 29 took place in Osaka Prefectural Gymnasium in Osaka, Japan on August 3rd, 2019 at 5pm Japanese Standard Time. The first A-block match of the night was Bad Luck Fale vs. Kenta. Going into the match, Kenta was in a three-way tie for second, four points behind the unbeaten block leader Kazuchika Okada. This being the seventh round of block action with only two rounds remaining after the night was over, a loss for Kenta would be catastrophic. Realistically, Kenta needs to pass Okada to ensure a victory in the block, so he needs at least five more points than Okada in their final three matches. With only six available at the start of night 13, Fale could turn out to be one of the biggest spoilers of the entire G1. The match started with Kenta looking for a strong start. Kenta ran the ropes to set up for some hit-and-run strikes, but Jado, who had accompanied Fale to the ring as he has been throughout the entire G1 tour, hit Kenta in the back with a kendo stick. That put Fale immediately into control of the match, and Fale would retain that control for a decent amount of the time. Fale, with help from Jado, kept Kenta down until Kenta was finally able to connect with a clothesline from the top rope. Kenta surged with dives and kicks, and after a while was able to get Fale in his game-over label lock. Fale tapped, but the referee didn't see it because Chase Owens, who was at ringside doing commentary, grabbed the referee in the far corner. That allowed Giotto to enter the ring and distract Kenta, and that allowed Fale to get Kenta into a schoolboy. That schoolboy allowed Fale to get his second win in the entire G1. Yes, Fale beat Kenta, and likely cost Kenta the entire tournament. If Okada wins his match in the main event, then Kenta is done. Kenta's only hope at this point is for Okada to lose all three of his final matches, and hope that somehow there's some tiebreaker trickery if enough people in the block finish in a tie. Realistically though, Kenta is eliminated. I thought this match was pretty good. The finish was definitely shocking for me, though up to that point, the match felt mostly like a pretty average to good Fale match. Kenta has definitely had better matches in the tournament, but I think a lot of that has to do with how Fale really had to dominate and shut down Kenta most of this match for it to seem believable. 
It was frustrating for sure, and it needed to be that way for it to make a real impact. And on me, it did definitely make an impact. The second A-block match of the night was Lance Archer versus Zack Sabre Jr. Both men had already been eliminated from the tournament before the night began, but this match wasn't without meaning. For Sabre, there was a lot of pride on the line. Sabre boasts a lot, and he absolutely hates it when he can't back up his boasts. For Archer, he didn't want to lose anymore, and he especially didn't want to lose to someone who talks as much trash as Sabre does. Plus, even though neither man really talked about it, the commentators pointed out that a win for Archer could possibly put him in line for a shot at the RPW British heavyweight title that Sabre holds. So even though the points for winning this specific match didn't really matter so much, there was still a lot going on in this match. Archer seemed supremely confident ever since their tag preview a few nights prior. Archer had made a few statements relating to how Sabre was a vegan, saying that he was going to show Sabre what a real meat eater does. I won't repeat what he said here, but if you're curious, you can go back and listen to the outro of the previous minisode I did over on cnjradio.com. I laid in Archer's comments over the ending music. Anyway, the point is, Archer did not seem concerned with Sabre at all. Even though they're both in the Suzuki-Goon faction, they were both out to embarrass each other. I feel like any member of Suzuki-Goon would be willing to destroy any of their stablemates for any reason, let alone a match in the G1 Climax. Archer started the match by using his size and a wrist lock to force Sabre into trying to come up with different ways to attack. Sabre had some beautiful counters and transitions, but his effectiveness often came down to how well he could isolate a vulnerable body part or use Archer's size against him. Sabre had a little success early in the match, but it also didn't look like his holds were doing much damage. Sabre tried hitting Archer with some European uppercuts, but that was a mistake. Sabre didn't really start making good progress until he used the ropes to get Archer off balance and into a couple of submission holds. Sabre had to release the holds quickly, but he was finally starting to put up some damage. Later in the match, Archer unleashed with a series of power moves that had Sabre down. Sabre was done, but when Archer went for the pin, Archer picked Sabre up before the three count. Like I said, Archer wanted to embarrass Sabre, and he wanted to finish him off with an even bigger move, but Sabre did not squander the opportunity at a second chance. Sabre leveraged Archer down to the mat and pinned Archer in a modified crucifix hold. Sabre then quickly rolled out of the ring with his two points and his life. And this, this was a fun match. Watching Sabre struggle with Archer's size while trying to figure out how to bring the big man down was highly entertaining. There were some really great sequences of technical holds from Sabre, followed by gigantic displays of power from Archer. There was a little bit of everything in this match, and I really enjoyed it. The third A-block match during Night 13 was Will Ospreay versus Evil. Evil was still barely alive in the tournament with 6 points, while Ospreay entered the match already eliminated. Evil needs every win from here on though, so a loss to Ospreay would immediately eliminate Evil from the G1. For Osprey, this match was about trying to get more points and credibility in the heavyweight division. The commentators also mentioned that Osprey wanted to do what he could to help Okada in the A-block standings since they're friends and stablemates. A win over Evil would definitely help eliminate some of Okada's potential competition. Osprey looked good right from the start of the match. His neck has been an ongoing issue since his match with Sonata, but Osprey was showing no signs of pain early. If his neck hadn't been taped up again, you wouldn't even know that there was a problem. But his neck was taped, and that made it a target. Osprey started quickly and frustrated Evil with his speed. Evil was able to avoid most of Osprey's attacks in the opening sequence, but just barely. 
Evil rolled out to ringside where he struggled as he tried to slide a chair into the ring. Osprey made light of Evil temporarily forgetting how folding chairs open and close, and that brought Evil back into the ring. There was another fast sequence initiated by Osprey, but Evil got the better of Osprey and both men ended up out on the floor. Outside the ring, Evil wrapped a chair around Osprey's head and hit it with another chair like he's been doing throughout the tournament. That started Evil's attack on Osprey's neck, and Evil would continue to focus on his neck throughout the rest of the match. The middle portion of the match featured a lot of back and forth sequences. Osprey tended to get the better of the quicker sequences while Evil dominated almost anything involving power. The back and forth pattern of the match started to break down with a big power bomb from Osprey. Osprey followed up with some brutal kicks, a Spanish fly, and the Oz cutter, but Evil kicked out. That was the biggest near fall of the match, and the crowd got noticeably louder right at that moment. I thought the match was over, but I was holding my breath as Red Shoes counted. Osprey tried to build back up for a second rope os cutter, but Evil blocked it. Evil hit Osprey with a pair of half and half suplexes that spiked Osprey down right on his neck, and he followed up with a lariat that sent Osprey down on his head and neck once again. Osprey was in bad shape, but he still tried to fight as Evil set him up for his Everything is Evil STO. Osprey couldn't escape though, so Evil hit his finisher and got the pinfall victory. With that, Evil saved himself from elimination, at least for the moment. Osprey suffered another tough loss, but he once again looked great doing it. And really, this was the first great match of the night. The tension by the end of the match was high, and everything after the first Ozcutter had me super excited and or nervous. I wanted Osprey to win because I want to see Osprey do well, but I'm not really mad that Evil won. I like Evil too, and the win meant more to him in regards to the tournament than it did to Osprey. Outside the G1 though, it seems like every match is a big deal for Will Osprey. He always wants to be the best, and when he loses, it always feels like he's disappointed in himself. Even in his win over Fale in a previous round, Osprey wasn't satisfied. He wants to have the best match on every show, no matter where he's placed on the card. And a lot of times, he succeeds. Tonight was a tough night for Osprey just because of the situation he and Evil were in, but yeah, the match was great. Neither man should be disappointed in what they've done in the G1 Climax this year. As great as Osprey and Evil was though, the next match topped it in my opinion. It was Kota Ibushi versus Hiroshi Tanahashi, and it was fantastic. Both men were tied with 8 points going into the match. A loss meant an even tougher road for the last couple of rounds, but it would hurt slightly worse for Tanahashi since he'd already lost to block leader Kazuchika Okada. Even so, both men needed this win. The match felt like it was about more than 2 points though. The commentators were talking about how Ibushi has 2 men that he looks up to the most in professional wrestling. One of those men is Shinsuke Nakamura, whose Bomaye knee strike Ibushi has been using throughout the tournament. The other man Ibushi looks up to is Hiroshi Tanahashi. There was clearly a lot of mutual respect between Ibushi and Tanahashi in this match. And on top of that, these two men faced each other in the finals of last year's G1 Climax, and Tanahashi won that match. So yeah, there was a lot going on here. Despite the respect both men have for each other, or really probably because of that respect, Neither man took it easy in this match. Both Abushi and Tanahashi went as hard as they could in this match and did anything they needed in order to try to get the win. The match started with both men trading side headlocks and then attempting some hip tosses. It was a basic start and it gave a good foundation for the match that would develop. Abushi hit a dropkick early in the match and that seemed to get Tanahashi going. Tanahashi immediately began to focus on Abushi's still injured ankle and it was apparent that Tanahashi was setting up for a Texas Cloverleaf a bit later on. Tanahashi was in firm control, 
but that suddenly changed when Ibushi hit a top rope Hurricane Rana as Tanahashi was setting up for a dive out to the floor. The sudden speed of Ibushi going from flat on his back out on the floor to jumping up into Tanahashi's face on the top turnbuckle was remarkable. Abushi followed up with a series of huge moves including a deadlift second rope German suplex from the apron to the inside of the ring. Tanahashi tried to stop Abushi's relentless attacks with a palm strike to the face, so a slap, but instead of stopping Abushi, it just made him change gears. Abushi stood there in the ring for a few seconds, and the look on his face changed. He has this other mode that he goes into, like a combination of anger and intensity, and that's what was happening here. Abushi slowly turned to face Tanahashi, and Abushi slapped the ace right in the face. That opened up a sequence of hard palm strikes from both men that ended with Abushi bleeding from the mouth and Tanahashi flat on his back after a lariat from Abushi. The match was entering its final stages by that point, and both men continued trading big moves, though Abushi was getting more offense overall. Abushi went for Kamigoye, but paid for it by getting countered into a trio of twist and shout swinging neckbreakers. But Obomaye, two hard kicks to the face, and a Kamigoye from Abushi were enough to put Hiroshi Tanahashi down for a three count. So Abushi moves forward with a real chance of winning the block, while Tanahashi is pretty much done. I loved this match. This is competing for my favorite of the tournament so far. I could feel the intensity from both men, and every move they landed felt like it was important. This really felt like a generational match. Maybe not a passing of the torch so much, though it could possibly be seen that way depending on what the future holds, but it certainly felt important for New Japan. Abushi has stated that he intends to remain in New Japan for the rest of his career, so getting a big and extremely important win over the ace of New Japan in the G1 Climax is a big deal. After the match, you could see Tanahashi talking to Abushi as they were both face down on the mat. I imagine this match and those words meant a lot to Abushi, and that was extremely cool to be able to see. And the final A block match during night 13 was a big match for a few reasons. It was Sonata versus Kazuchika Okada, and a lot of people were very interested in the outcome of this match. Sonata went into the match with only 4 points, so Okada's perfect 12 points had already eliminated Sonata from winning the block. However, Tanahashi, Evil, and Kenta's fates all relied on Sonata getting a victory. If Okada won or even went to a time limit draw, Tanahashi, Evil, and Kenta would all be mathematically eliminated. The only man who would remain with a chance would be Kota Ibushi. Though I'm sure Sonata was happy to try to help his friend Evil stay alive in the G1, for Sonata, this match meant a lot more. First, since Okada is the IWGP Heavyweight Champion, if Sonata were to beat Okada, he would be most likely in line for a title shot. What seemed even bigger than that, though, was the fact that Sonata has never beaten Okada one-on-one. -on -one. Okada has beaten Sonata six times in the past, but Sonata had yet to get a victory. For Sonata, I think just beating Okada meant more than anything else on the line in this match. With his 6-0 record against Sonata lifetime and his 6-0 record in the G1 Climax this year, Okada was supremely confident heading into this match. That confidence carried Okada to taking a gradual lead as the match began. Okada was getting the better of Sonata in a bit of back and forth action, but Sonata turned things around early with a burst of quick offense. It's fun to watch Sonata go from calm and cool and tranquilo to suddenly running and jumping all around the ring. Sonata was doing well, but his burst of offense was a turning point in the match for both men. Okada started looking for and hitting more powerful moves, and he started countering as Sonata started looking for his skull and dragon sleeper. Okada focused a lot on Sonata's neck with some neckbreakers and a tombstone pile driver, and it was clear he was working his way towards the Rainmaker. 
Sonata did a good job of avoiding Okada's ripcord lariat though, and he started getting Okada into Skull End off and on for increasing amounts of time. By then the match had gone on for a long time, and well past the 20 minute mark, Sonata started to focus on getting Skull End. Okada was in Sonata's Dragon Sleeper finisher for minutes, and the clock was starting to become an issue. As the time inched closer and closer to the 30 minute time limit, Sonata had to make a choice. He could either keep Okada in his submission even though Okada wasn't giving up, or he could take a chance and try to finish Okada with a moonsault. Sonata went for the moonsault, but as he came down, Okada put his knees up. It was pretty heartbreaking. There was still about a minute left in the match, and Sonata managed to get Okada face down on the mat. Sonata hesitated, wondering what he should do, and he decided to go back up to the top. Sonata hit a moonsault on Okada's back, but that wasn't enough. Sonata took the risk and went up again with less than 30 seconds on the clock. Sonata connected with a second moonsault, went for the pin, and he beat Kazuchika Okada. This match was good, but the final 10 minutes were great. It was incredibly tense, and the way Okada kept not giving up had me pulling harder and harder for Sonata. Red Shoes Uno, the referee, was also great during the extended time that Sonata had Skull End on Okada. Sonata and Okada weren't really moving much down on the mat, and we couldn't even see Okada's face since the Dragon Sleeper has Sonata's arm covering Okada's face. Red Shoes added a ton of drama to the match by how he kept checking on Okada, though. Red Shoes kept asking Okada if he wanted to give up, but as Okada started to fade, that turned into Red Shoes simply asking for any response from Okada. At one point you could see Red Shoes agonizing over whether or not he was going to end the match because he wasn't getting a response. You could see it in Red Shoes' face that he didn't want to end the match that way because he wants the wrestlers to end the matches on their own. But with the clock running out and two points on the line, Red Shoes was visibly torn. It was a great performance from all three men in that ring, and it was a great way to end a great night of wrestling. But less than 24 hours after the conclusion of Night 13, everyone was back at the Osaka Prefectural Gymnasium for B-Block action. Night 14 of the G1 Climax 29 took place at the Edeon Arena Osaka in Osaka, Japan at 3pm Japanese Standard Time. Seven men were in a tie for second place in the block, and the first match up featured two men who were trying to break out of that tie and get two points closer to the block leader, John Moxley. It was Toru Yano versus Tomohiro Ishii, and it was a fun match, but it wasn't what we usually see from Toru Yano. Yano started his preparation for Ishii before Ishii even made his ring entrance. By the time Ishii got into the ring, Yano had two turnbuckle pads off completely and was working on a third. Ishii hurried over and attacked Yano, but Yano responded with a flurry that involved tricking Ishii into running into the turnbuckles and using multiple t-shirts to blind Ishii. Yano got a few near falls within the first few seconds of the match, and this seemed like it was going to be the shortest Yano match of the G1, which is saying a lot. Instead, Ishii kicked out of all the pin attempts, so Yano left the ring and sat down on the ramp in a chair to try to draw Ishii out. Ishii would not budge from the center of the ring though, so the referee started the count. Yano waited and waited, but Ishii was content with a countout victory, so Yano had to rush back in just before the count of 20. At that point, the match turned into an actual wrestling match. Yano had some good takedowns, and he started going strike for strike with Ishii. Yano even got the better of Ishii in some of their striking sessions, and Yano put Ishii down to the mat with a series of elbows. It was kind of baffling to see Yano in this mode. It was certainly fun to watch. After a while, there were some more near falls from both men, but Ishii ended up getting the pinfall victory after a vertical drop brainbuster. Even though Yano lost, his performance was great. 
I love that he can actually wrestle and fight strong style matches, but he chooses to cheat instead. I think that's great, and it was a great way to start the block action for Night 14. The second B-Block match during Night 14 had a possible elimination on the line. It was Tai Chi versus Juice Robinson, and if Tai Chi lost, then he would be mathematically eliminated from the tournament. He was already in a terrible spot going in, but with four points, he could technically tie John Moxley if Tai Chi won all three of his final matches and Moxley lost all three of his. Add in some tie-breaking shenanigans, and Tai Chi sort of kind of had a chance. Juice was one of the men in a tie for third after Ishii took the sole second place spot just minutes prior, so basically both Juice and Tai Chi desperately needed this match. Tai Chi had the lovely Miho Abe and Yoshinobu Kanemaru with him again, and Kanemaru actually got the action started. Before Juice made it to the ring, Kanemaru attacked Juice at ringside while Tai Chi distracted the referee. The match started, and Tai Chi nearly won immediately but Juice survived and started to build a quick comeback that had Tai Chi scrambling. From there, the match turned into a straightforward wrestling match from both men. The action was back and forth, and I was really enjoying it. For a while, I really thought that Tai Chi was done with cheating for the night. Of course, he wasn't, and the last part of the match involved everyone. Kanemaru tried to spit whiskey in Juice's face, but Juice punched Kanemaru and sent the whiskey straight up into the air. However, Tai Chi took that time to swig some whiskey of his own, and Tai Chi's Whiskey Mist did connect. With Juice blinded, Tai Chi hit his Black Mephisto Air Raid Crash and took two points to put himself even with Juice and five other men at six points total. That helps Tai Chi, of course, but both men are in a dangerous position. If Moxley wins or even gets a draw later in the night, then everyone still at six points will be eliminated. Tai Chi could have just spoiled Juice's night of ultimate revenge against Moxley in the final night of block competition. I did like this match though. Like I've said a few times before, I like Tai Chi and I like to watch him wrestle. He's a good bad guy as well because even though I like him, when he starts cheating, I always want to see it backfire on him. Or maybe that's just because Kanemaru was helping him. I think I always want to see Kanemaru lose. The next match up during Night 14 was another tie-breaking match. It was Hiroki Goto versus Jeff Cobb, and both men had 6 points going into the match. Goto started strong in the G1 before quickly taking a dive, only to build back up. Cobb started slow, but has been making good progress since then, so this match felt like it could go either way. Goto and Cobb have a little history with each other as well. Goto had previously beaten Jeff Cobb for the Never Openweight title, and Cobb has previously beaten Goto once before, but there wasn't any real animosity between them in this match. They both wanted to win, but they went about it in a very matter-of-fact kind of way. They each stuck to what they do best and just tried to wear their opponent down. It felt like the first man to hit his finisher would be the winner, and that's exactly what happened. The build-up in the match was good. They both started out with some smaller moves and strikes and built up to some bigger moments. Each man had Knight's offense, and the match really went back and forth for the entire time. Cobb started looking for his Tour of the Islands power slam first, but Goto was the first man to actually hit his finisher, the GTR Backbreaker. So Goto got the win and the two points he needed to move up into a tie for second along with Ishii. Goto guaranteed that he wouldn't be eliminated tonight, but Cobb was now on the bubble along with five other men. I don't think this match really stood out as one of the best of the tournament, but that's some pretty stiff competition. And really, coming off of a fantastic A-block show the night before, I think the bar has been raised. Still, Cobb vs. Goto was definitely enjoyable. The next to last match during Night 14 was block leader John Moxley versus the man who has vowed to win six matches in a row, Jay White. 
Moxley went into this match with 10 points, but his loss to Yano during the previous round had weakened his grip on B-Block. That loss seemed to fire Moxley up, and he started this match by attacking Jay White before the bell. Moxley took the fight to the floor where he pulled out a table, but before he could use it, Gato took the table and carried it away, placing it up on the entrance ramp. That was the first of Gato's interferences, and even though he wouldn't get involved again until the match was nearly over, the distraction by Gato early in the match helped contribute to some of Jay White's early offense. White fought back against Moxley, but Moxley's attacks wore White down to the point where White was practically punching himself out at times. Moxley also started going for White's legs, which further weakened White's strikes. Late in the match, though, White finally started to go to his shenanigans. White played possum, and that created a distraction which allowed Gato to hit Moxley with the brass knuckles that Gato always carries in his jacket pocket. Moxley fought back, but White was able to weasel his way into hitting Blade Runner before Moxley could hit Death Rider, and White took two more points in the G1. So White has won four in a row after dropping his first three matches, and he's more than halfway to fulfilling his promise of six straight wins. He's also in a three-way tie just two points behind John Moxley. Moxley is in trouble now, and he's seeing his firm grip on the block crumble in the second half of the tournament. Moxley's loss also means that as of now, Shingo Takagi is the only man who faces mathematical elimination if he fails to beat Naito in the main event of the night. Speaking of Shingo Takagi, it was finally time for his match against his friend and stablemate, the IWGP Intercontinental Champion, Tetsuya Naito. Shingo was alone at the bottom of the block with only 4 points, and Naito was in a 5-way tie for 5th place with 6 points. A win for Naito meant jumping up into a tie for 2nd place and a real shot at catching Moxley. It also meant elimination for Shingo. Shingo needed nothing less than a full 2 points in order to have even a long shot hope of winning B-Block. Since both Shingo and Naito are members of Los Ingobernables de Japón, I think this was a match that a lot of people were interested in. I certainly was. On top of that, the commentators spoke about how Shingo and Naito had met each other all the way back in high school, though their paths diverged greatly in the years leading up to this match. Shingo and Naito hadn't been antagonistic towards each other at all leading up to this match. It wasn't like how Evil refused to take part in celebrations and would leave the ring on his own after tag matches prior to his G1 match with Sonata. Shingo and Naito knew what they were getting into and they were cool with it. They were even looking forward to it. You could see that in this match because Naito didn't really try to play any mind games with Shingo. At the most, I would say Naito did some light mocking of Shingo at one point, and he did spit on Shingo once in the heat of battle, but that's Naito at his friendliest. Shingo probably got a little worked up in those moments, but for the most part, both men just fought as hard as they could with no shenanigans. The fight was great. Shingo used his power more and more as the match went on, and he was throwing some insanely hard lariats high on Naito's chest and neck. Naito was rocked more than a few times by Shingo's power. Also, Shingo's familiarity with Naito's moves and habits helped Shingo predict and counter some of Naito's offense. Naito relied on his speed and his ability to absorb tremendous amounts of punishment to keep himself in this match. Naito sometimes had to wait for openings, but when he found those openings, Naito capitalized. One of the biggest sequences for Naito was when he reversed an attempted second rope powerbomb from Shingo into a Hurricane Rana followed quickly by a Poison Rana. Shingo would power back into this match, but Naito began hitting more quick combinations like that as the match neared its finish. Naito started looking for his finisher first, and after a few attempts, Naito connected with Destino. The first one didn't do the trick, but a second one did, and Naito pinned Shingo Takagi, thus eliminating Shingo while moving himself up to 8 points. 
This was a fantastic match and is sure to place well on my best of the G1 Climax list that I'll be making at the end of the tournament. Shingo and Naito are two of my favorite wrestlers in all of professional wrestling, and I was happy to see them shine in this main event. I was also happy that the match never devolved into anger or resentment. Even after the match, when Naito was closing out the show, he complimented Shingo and said that they would have to fight again. He said that he knew he'd made the right choice by bringing Shingo into LIJ. So just like Sonata and Evil after their match, everything is okay within LIJ. I like that. I also really like the 7th round of the G1 Climax 29. There are only 2 rounds left before the finals and things have continued to get more and more interesting. Some of the early frontrunners are stumbling in their final matches, while some of the wrestlers who started slow are surging towards the end. B-Block has been more even throughout the G1, and that's still true now. Moxley is still in the lead, but he's only two points ahead of four men, Naito, Ishii, White, and Goto. The biggest surprise for me is that Juice Robinson is sitting at four points behind Moxley. I really thought their match against each other on the final night would be a block decider. That could still happen at this point, but Juice is going to have a more difficult time getting there than I thought. Over in A block, it really feels like Okada and Ibushi are the only two men left. Technically, there are more men chasing Okada, but Kenta and Tanahashi have already lost a tiebreaker to Okada. Evil could conceivably tie Okada in points, and that would also mean that he'd have to beat Okada to do it. That kind of seems unlikely though. Everyone else is eliminated in A block, so yeah, I think Ibushi is going to be the one to take Okada down but we'll just have to wait to see if that happens. We won't have long to wait though, because there are barely any breaks in the last week of the G1. The finals will be here sooner than I realized, so I need to go watch some of the shows I'm already behind on. And if you're behind on anything in the G1 Climax, you can always go to cnjradio.com to check out all of these minisodes, as well as brief written recaps and reviews for every match on every show, including all the tag previews. Also check out cnjradio.com for the rest of the Wrestling House Show episodes, including a new monthly wrap-up real soon. While you're there, discover the rest of the CNJ Radio family of podcasts, and interact on our Facebook and Twitter, at House Show. And after you've done all of that, sign up on njpwworld.com to get ready to binge my favorite G1 matches as I share them in my upcoming G1 Climax wrap-up. But now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go back to njpwworld.com and start watching round 8 of Block Action so I'll see you back here in a couple of days. Bye. Oh, big bastard. Ah, I think that's taken years off of my life. Ah, he's right, everybody died. Like he's, he's getting me going to death soon. You know, I thought sort of... Vegan superpowers, you know, I don't consume any animal products. I mean, that should have added at least 10 or 20 years onto my life. Now that's just taken 30. I'm, I'm actually in worse health since I've been becoming vegan. Fun nightmare. Oh, tell you what, though. Huh? Zaki, big tech.